0: Hey there, everyone. Welcome to the Forge by Trust podcast. And my name is Robin Dreek. I am the founder and CEO of People Formula, as well as retired head of the FBI counterintelligence behavioral analysis program. On today's podcast, we're going to be talking with a great teacher, friend, mentor and guide of mine, the amazing Jack Schaefer. Jack is the author of The Like Switch, as well as his recent book that we're going to be talking about as The Truth Detector. He's also a retired FBI agent like myself, and he's a statement analysis expert, a consultant, lecturer, writer, researcher, you name it. Jack is it when it comes to all things behavioral ends. Amazing tidbit, Jack was on my very first behavioral analysis program, behavioral assessment on a spy recruitment case, and he really taught me how to really look at human beings in a different and more productive manner for forging trust. On today's episode, we're going to cover a lot of things from Jack's book, but here are the highlights. We're going to be talking about how to use elicitation as a preemptive truth detector. We're going to be talking about the top three elicitation techniques you can use to inspire someone to share truth before they have time to lie. When you're talking about developing rapport quickly, how to recognize elicitation, and really importantly, defending yourself against it, and how to use elicitation to build relationships and forge that trust that you need to overcome so many obstacles and challenges in our lives that require good, healthy, strong relationships. Also, if you could right now, leave a nice... Party! great review because every time we leave a good review it enables me to share this episode and share this podcast with more people because as I always say from another great teacher mentor guy to mine the amazing Joe Navarro and that is if you have at least one bit of information someone else could benefit from it is our responsibility to get it to them. and so with that sit back relax and Get ready to take some notes because this is going to be a great conversation where we're going to be talking about some amazing communication skills and tools. Enjoy. And, but (laughs) I actually have a, uh, I wanted to surprise you with this because I think the most interesting thing is you and I have known each other over 20 years now.
1: Yeah. I was just thinking about that when we were on that other show, I thought, my gosh, it goes back 50, I've been out 16 years. I knew you 5 years before that. Oh, there it is.
0: And so here's the evidence of how long we've known each other. So, they gave us out at our first BAP training um, that I went to where you taught and had the the wonderful tie. And uh <laughs> <laughs> that, that
1: was and, you know, uh, Vince put me up to that.
0: <laughs> I know it's a great story and and the great th- the greatest thing is is that I had Joe sign it and then I had you sign it when I took it to our first BAP consult that we did together and because this used to be my, my manual, I used to walk around with this book, you know, when we did a BAP consult to make sure I was, yeah. I was structuring things well. And anyway, on it, it says, uh, Robin words are the building blocks of uh, truth and justice, Jack Shaver. And you at least dated it five twenty nine
1: 2004.
0: Wow. <laughs> and I came on the team in January of 2002.
1: So, okay. Yeah, I remember you You came out from New York. Yep. It took, it, it took me about two years before I was real comfortable.
0: Which, so, you know, for everyone listening, I, this is just a, a, not just a conversation with a great author, but one of my teacher mentors and guides in life, it's, it's Jack Schaefer. Joe Navarro is my other one. You two are great friends, great mentors, great guides, and, you know, you both taught me. The most important thing in life that I it's actually my company motto now, it's everything I do is continually learn and educate others. And if you have at least one bit of information to share with the rest of the world, shame on you for not getting it to them in any way you can. So and obviously you've then taken that to the next level because you know, once you retired, you don't not only consult, but you teach, (laughs) continually teach. So anyway, we are here to talk about your mastery that you're, you're, you're phenomenal at turning a phrase and coming up with these great titles. Like when you came up with the like switch for your first book, I was like, wow, that's genius. That is what a genius hook point kind of moment where you came up with a title. And I remember when you're talking about doing your next book, you know, you're thinking about what you're going to do and you're talking about doing elicitation. And now personally, I have stayed away from teaching and training elicitation because it can be a dark art. It can be used, you know, and can be viewed manipulative and we'll get into it. But when you came up with this title, The Truth Detector, and the way you frame it, I was like, he did it again. This, you, that is just genius. I mean, it, I love the concept of getting people to tell the truth before they have time to be deceptive. That was just genius. So good on you, Jack. It's great to chat. We've yeah. never done one of these. I'm going to be horrible at it. You know, trying to have a conversation with the Jedi master of conversations, but I, I figured this would be a good opportunity for those that don't both know you as well, you know, and your background to kind of get a little bit of that to see where the genius comes from. But more importantly, I want to do, I do want to talk about elicitate what it is, what it isn't and different ways to, to have people, it in their life in a productive way, and also recognize people that are trying to take advantage of them as well with it. So with that, hi, <laughs> how are you? <laughs> I'm good. I'm doing well. Thank you. Good. So just let's kick off with a really simple question. What's elicitation?
1: Elicitation is the uh, art of getting someone to reveal sensitive information without them realizing that they're revealing sensitive information. So it's merely steering a conversation and developing using human predispositions to allow people to talk freely.
0: And so you've been doing this a very long time, but you obviously weren't born doing this. How did you discover elicitation? Where did you discover it? When did you first actively employ it?
1: When we first started in the counterintelligence, when I was an FBI agent, we would get information from sources that sometimes we didn't know they were telling the truth or not. And if you ask somebody a direct question, many times they will not give you a direct answer. So it's a lot easier to use elicitation to get people to reveal their true feelings and thoughts. So it was based on my work with the intelligence world.
0: And so did you, what did you do before the FBI?
1: I was a police officer and I was in the Marine Corps and I was in the Army and the Merchant Marines.
0: So a lifetime of government service as well. And see, Jack, all these years, I didn't even know you were a Marine as well. So right
1: Marine Corps Reserve, after I got out of the Army.
0: Did you discover elicitation back then? Was it taught to you? Did you learn it on the job? I mean, how did it all work?
1: It basically, when I started working in the intelligence field, that's when I started looking around for ways to get people to give me information that's sensitive that they normally wouldn't give you under direct questioning. And with uh, interviews in criminals... It's more of a direct uh, response, yes or no, and, and there's, there's a, a goal in mind, and that's a confession you have, or you think you know what the truth is, and you're trying to get to it, but with intelligence, anything can be of value right. in the intelligence world, so it's best to get people to talk as much as they can, because when they talk, they tend to reveal information that sometimes they're not supposed to, and they don't realize that they're doing it.
0: Now, I know, I mean, I received my training from you and Joe and uh, like Chris Voss with, with you know, Never Split the Difference. But was there an origin that you learned it? I mean, as I know back, back in the day, you know, a lot of this stuff is just on-the-job training. I mean, how did you come up with your system for it?
1: I think it was an evolution because instinctively, people know a lot of these elicitation techniques and they use them. And what you have to do then is to figure out, What is that specific technique? Give it a name, know the variables that go into manipulating that technique. And then once you know those things, then you can intentionally use that technique instead of relying on just instinct, you can intentionally use it as a tool. And so I think it was an evolution from, I would instinctively do things and I would see other people instinctively do things and those things work. And you're like, how do they work? What's involved in that technique? So how can I intentionally use it rather than rely on just instinct? And that's what I attempted to do here is take those instinctive things that we do and break them down, identify them so we can name it. Yeah. And then, then we can intentionally use it.
0: Yeah, that's it's what I call giving it label and meaning because then you recognize it everywhere. For me, I call it the new car effect. You buy a new car, all of a sudden you start seeing that yeah. new car. And so funny yeah. when, I, when I listen to you and I look at your content, it makes me say, what came first, the chicken or the egg? Because it's it, you know our stuff sounds so similar sometimes. Like, I thought I came up with this. I don't think I maybe I did come up with this. Or maybe we came up with it independently. So it makes it a, a fascinating well, world. The way I like
1: to look at it, there's really nothing new under the sun. Right. And so what, what I try to do is go into the literature, and it's very esoteric, very pompous, and very written in, where ordinary people can't read it. So what I what I like to do is get all that research, get all the results and then repackage it and put it in the, in the bottom shelf where people can 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 read it in an attractive package. So um, a lot okay. of the stuff I, I use comes from research, comes from personal experiences. And all I do is repackage it so people can understand it and use it more, more importantly, use it in the field.
0: I don't know if you introduced me to this book, or it was um, Sue Adams, you know, some of the other greats when it comes to interviewing. But uh, you mentioned one of my favorite books of all time, and I actually have it on my my shelf: "The Interrogator." Oh, okay. Hans Scharf. When did you discover that book, and what did that mean to that, you?
1: That when I first started getting into elicitation, I worked when I when I left the bureau, I got hired by a private contractor in the in the Beltway. And they worked with a lot of uh, the same things we work with in the FBI and the counterintelligence world. And that's when I took a really deep dive into elicitation. And that's when I really started finding out who is, the, who is like the grandfather of elicitation or where did it come from? And everybody seems to point towards Sharp. He was that German uh, interrogator who used non-invasive friendly Non-threatening techniques, and he got a lot more information than the, than the Gestapo did, who used torture and uh, a lot of threatening techniques. So he's he's the kind of the the person who set the set the the whole elicitation ball rolling.
0: Yeah, and for those listening, you know, it's it's a, as as Jack was saying, it's a book about you know this this German interrogator during World War II that was interrogating you know. Allied pilots that got shot down for intel and information, and that automatically draws up images of, like you said, the Gestapo torture kind of things. And this this man was anything but that. So I I love it not just for solicitation techniques, but even in the darkest times and the darkest places in the world, you can still have rays of humanity. That you know, because he did a good job just taking care of the pilots. Granted, he got a lot of information as well, but he a good human being. And you mentioned this word once already. I want to explore this a little bit deeper because I am, you know, I am hyper about this, this term, because if you come across this way in any way or even sense, you know, and that's manipulation, you won't have trust, no trust, you know, you won't get a whole lot or very far. So how do you define manipulation and where does elicitation fall on that scale?
1: Well, there's two sides to elicitation. You can use it for good and you can like, We all want the best out of life. We want the best deals we can get. We want the best relationships we can get. We want to be able to negotiate in the business world. We wanna get the best products that we can negotiate for. And a lot of that information is kind of closely held information. So if we had access to that information, we can use it for good and get the best out of life. Now, the, the bad side is con men use these same techniques to elicit information from people to steal their identity and steal money from them ultimately. So the just knowing these elicitation techniques and knowing how they work and in what context they work, then the potential victim can recognize when they are being the targeted by an elicitation by a stranger. So... You can use it as a defense if you if you don't you're not comfortable using elicitation techniques at least learn them so that you won't become a victim of elicitation so, so there's, there's two sides and so and for you
0: what are i know i have a couple of favorites as well what are you what do you think are the top you know two to three techniques that people either fall victim to or that are the most effective when dealing with human beings
1: I think the the number one technique is the human predisposition to correct other people, because we as humans want to be right. And when we correct other people, that elevates us above the person we're correcting. So that makes us feel good because we know more than the other person that we're talking to. So that kind of elevates us and in order to kind of prove that we're more superior, we we often give out a lot of information that perhaps we shouldn't. So many of these techniques that are in the book found on that technique of the need to correct others. For example, if there's something called a presumptive and all you want to do is you either want to make a statement, either it can be true or it can be false. And if it happens to be false, then what happens is that person feels this overwhelming need to correct you so I can get information from you without you realizing that you're giving up information. And I'll tell you how powerful this is. I was in class at Western Illinois, where I teach university, and I was uh, demonstrating this elicitation technique of the presumptive and the need to correct. And one of the students made a comment, she was a senior, I knew that. And I said, wow, that's, that's a pretty insightful comment for a sophomore and she just stopped kind of gritted her teeth kind of did a lip compression because she knew what I was doing and then I said okay she's probably aware of what I'm doing and then I moved on a couple sentences and she says I'm a senior I said why why did you feel the need to tell me that she's "I, I couldn't let it go I just I just had to correct you and I knew what you were doing and yet I still had to correct you so that's how powerful that the need to correct is So the presumptive uh, can have a kind of a a downside because for somebody to make an intentionally incorrect statement is very difficult for many people to do because they don't want to be wrong. So their ego kind of gets in the way of using this technique. So the the, the number one thing with with elicitation is you got to suspend your ego because it's all about getting information from people and not you feeling good about yourself. It's about obtaining information from people.
0: Ego suspension is the bedrock of elicitation and all that you need to do to kind of set the stage for elicitation. What advice do you have? I mean, how do people do that? How do you go about
1: suspending your ego? Well, you just have to realize, that, and I tell my students, especially the students, they, they, they have to be, they're perfectionists. And I, I intentionally point out their mistakes. And then I say, you admit that this is wrong. And they said, well, if I admit it, then I won't be an A student. I said, no, the sun is going to rise in the morning. Your parents are still going to love you. Your friends are still going to like you. And you're going to be a lot less tense because you're not always worried about being right. It's OK to admit making a mistake. So. It, it just to demonstrate that when I'm in class and I'll misspeak and a student will say, well, that's wrong. I'll think about it and go like, yeah, you're right. It's wrong. Let's erase it and then move on, you know, move on to something, you know, that works. So the, my advice is, you know, with, with elicitation and ego suspension is it's OK to be wrong. And it takes a lot of pressure off you because once you're wrong and admit you're wrong, it's easy after your first admission that you did something wrong
0: i imagine that's a really powerful rapport builder to do that and that kind of gets me to so how do you set the stage for elicitation to be you know effective I, I imagine you can't just dive right into a conversation and use a presumptive statement to get someone to do something although probably sometimes you can you got to kind of set that stage a little bit how do you do that
1: well, what you do is when you first meet people, you can use non behaviors to let people know that you're not a threat. And there's typically three top sig- friend signals that we have. The first one is an eyebrow flash. That's a quick up, up and down movement of the eyebrows. And what that does is that lets the person know that you're not a threat. So it's a long distance signal. So when you approach somebody and they're approaching you, you will exchange eyebrow flashes. So what you're doing is telling one another that we're not a threat. If that other person does not eyebrow flash, then you're gonna get a weird feeling like, well, well there's something a little bit wrong with that person. I better keep an eye on that person. You're not very comfortable. You don't know why, but you just get that feeling you're uncomfortable. So it only lasts one, about 1 of a second. And what you should do is, is don't take my word for it. Go about your business and watch for eyebrow flashes. And you'll catch yourself eyebrow flashing other people. And you'll say, oh, my gosh, I never knew I did this. It's one of those kind of subliminal things that we do or semi-conscious things that we do that we do hundreds of times a day. And some students will come back and go like, oh, my gosh, Mr. Schaefer, I eyebrow flashed that guy. I said, yeah, you eyebrow flash people hundreds of times a day. All it is is a friend signal. The second one is the head tilt, because when we tilt our head, we expose our carotid artery. And that's a vulnerable part of our body. So we're letting that person know, hey, we're, we're not afraid that you're going to hurt us. And uh, the good example I like to use with dog lovers. If you have a dog or a pet and you come home and well, they typically they'll sit there and they'll what? Tilt their head. I don't know if you have a dog or not, but I have a dog and the dog just sits there and goes like this <laughs> and looks me in the eye. So what the dog is saying is I'm, I'm not a threat. And uh, sometimes they'll flip over on their back and expose their, st- you know, you know, their, their tummy. And that is their, uh, that's their weakest part of their body. And they're saying, hey, I'm exposing myself because I trust you. The, the next thing that we can do is, is smile. And what a smile does is we release endorphins. And endorphins make us feel good. So if we smile, we feel good about us. And if we make somebody else smile, they feel good that we are making them smile. And that kind of taps into that golden rule of friendship. If you want people to like you, you want to make them feel good about themselves. Because if you're with somebody and you like that person and you feel good every time you're with that person, you're going to want to naturally be by that person again. And in fact, you may even think of an excuse to see that person again, Mm -hmm. just to have that same good feeling. So that's the kind of thing that you want to bring to elicitation is when you want to talk to somebody and get sensitive information, you want to send out the right signals that say, I'm listening to you. And one way to say, I'm listening to you is to use empathic statements. And that is take what that person said, use parallel language, and then mirror it back to them. So... That's, that's another way to get a good rapport. And the last major way, I think it's common ground. And there's three ways that we can make common ground and common ground is one of the quickest ways to establish rapport with somebody. And that is the first way is contemporaneous. That means we share something the same, like you're an FBI agent, I'm an FBI agent. We share something at the same time so we can establish uh, common ground quickly. Or the the second thing is, if you're in the army, I was in the army, so that I can say over time, so temporal, over time, we have common ground. And the last thing is vicarious. We live through somebody else. Interestingly enough, car salesmen use this quite a bit. You go onto their car lot and they go, hi, how are you? What do you do for a living? Say, "I'm I'm an electrician car dealer can't say he's an electrician. He may never have been an electrician. He doesn't know anything about electricity, so he can't really talk about it. So what does he say? Oh, my brother's an electrician. And if the customer starts asking you about what is your brother doing, anything about electricity, so oh, I don't know. He just comes over. When the lights go out, he comes over and fixes it. I don't know much about electricity. But what they've done is you, you don't have to answer questions about that occupation and you've established common ground through somebody else. That's called vicarious common ground. So those are basically the ways when you walk up to people, you want to look for those things. And a good way to look at it is people have shirts. People have logos on their shirts. People have hats. They have jewelry. They have watches. They have all kinds of things that we can use to try to establish common ground with people. Like I was just saying, if you have a baseball team like the Cubs and you don't like the Cubs, but you like the socks, what do you have in common? Baseball. So you can always find that common ground with people. And that makes uh, rapport building uh, quicker and easier.
0: It sets the plate very well for the elicitation. And you mentioned in the book also the elicitation sandwich. Can you go a little bit into what that sandwich looks like and what that is?
1: Yeah, that's, that's the thing that there's something called primacy and recency. People have a tendency to remember the first thing they say, hear, or do. And they have a tendency to remember the last things they hear, say, or do. So what you want to do is put your elicitation technique in the middle or sandwich it between your beginning and your ending. So what you do basically is you start out with building rapport techniques. Oh, you're feeling good today. How are you doing? This and that. Build a little rapport. Sandwich in your elicitation technique. And then once you get the information, then you close with something that's non-threatening or very general. So when you, if you were to ask somebody, what did that person talk about? They would typically talk about the first and last things that happened. And this is typical. You ask somebody what they did on their vacation. What do they remember? Going to the vacation. They remember coming home from the vacation. But in the vacation, they have a tendency to forget what they did.
0: So- I, one thing that struck me when I was going, when I was reading the book was, wow, that's a lot of planning, a lot of strategizing, uh, a lot of engagements. And so you're obviously a master of this and people around you also know that you're a master of this. Has has, has it ever been off-putting anyone that, or they get intimidated by being around you or are they afraid you're going to get something from, uh, you're going to get something from them, anything like that?
1: Yeah, I often run into that, but I tell people, you know, I'm not working <laughs> That's put it. just having fun here, you know? So it's, it does, it does sometimes play into that, but you, you just got to get around it.
0: Have you ever had an instance where you're called out on it, where someone recognized what you're doing?
1: Yeah, actually what, what we do, you, you see how, how difficult this is. This isn't difficult because when I trained intelligence officers, I used to, we had a four hour block of elicitation in the morning and then in the afternoon, we would go out to a mall, Pentagon City Mall, if you from Washington. It's a very large shopping center. And we used to actually take the students out and assign them random targets and tell them, go get that person's date of birth, go get their computer PIN number, go get their bank account information, go get their mother's maiden name. And the students are able to accomplish those things within three to five minutes of meeting a perfect stranger. So... I walked into a store because a person was having a difficult time getting, I think it was a mother's maiden name or something. And I said, well, come on in, I'll show you how to do it. And so I'm halfway through this elicitation technique and the lady looks at me and she goes, you're trying to get my mother's maiden name, aren't you? Or my, my, yeah, my mother's maiden name. And I says, well, yes, I am. And she says, I knew it. I recognize the technique because they teach it in the sales course I took. and I says so then I said well you're right I am practicing I said how did I do she said well you did pretty good if I didn't realize that you were using that technique I would have never known it (laughs) so that that's a good example of you can defend yourself if you know the techniques
0: absolutely who do you think makes the best elicitors the worst elicitors or does it not make a difference
1: Yeah. You know, extroverts make horrible elicitors, not horrible, but they have to be trained. And the reason I say that is because they have a tendency to talk all the time and they don't listen. And I'll give you a good example. We had an introvert and an extrovert walk into a store and all they had to do was get the date of birth of the clerk. That's it. That's really easy. You can do that in, in a minute. And the extrovert walks in, he starts talking and talking and the, the clerk actually, I was there listening, and the clerk actually gave his date of birth. He, he told the date of birth. And then the, the guy walked out, the student walked out. And I said, well, how do you, how'd you do? And the extrovert goes, man, I blew that. I didn't get the date of birth. I'm sorry, I'm gonna try again. And the introvert looks at him and says, what are you talking about? Here's his date of birth. And the introvert popped it out. And I said, yeah, he's right. He did give it to you. Well, how come I didn't hear it? Cause you're too busy talking. And not listening
0: yes and i'm laughing because yes i am the and you and it's funny because you're had it in your book you went through the myers-briggs yes i am the entj and so it's taken a lifetime of training and i still fail at it miserably
1: um i'm 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 an entp i'm a strong extrovert so i i have that problem and i have to be very when i do uh, when i do go operational and go you know my my uh, objective is to elicit information I have to monitor myself to say, shut up, shut up. Don't say anything. Just shut up, just shut up.
0: You know, it's so funny because, yeah, literally BAP consults when we do them. And for those listening, we generally assemble three or four of our behavioral analysis team members like Jack and myself. And uh, we'd have maybe one of our operational psychs there. And we go around and we strategize human engagements and we strategize trust. And I would literally sit there with my notepad in front of me and I'd write on it, shut up, shut up, shut up, shut up, shut up. (laughs) And I still couldn't do it.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I know. As I am now, (laughs) that's why I think introverts make better elicitors. Yeah, absolutely. Introverts have a tendency to listen to what other people say, and they tend to think about what other people say. Extroverts have a tendency to—it's like word puke. You just vomit words out, and we expect the listener to go through the vomit there to find out if there's anything of value in the word puke. (laughs)
0: No doubt. So have you ever I, have you ever had a, a, a moment of like sheer shock with a, a bit of information that you weren't expecting to get through elicitation?
1: Yeah. Actually, it, what comes to mind, is, it, it's, it's so vivid in my memory because we went into a jewelry store. I saw a jewelry store at the mall and I told the student, let's go in like we're going to case the place to rob it. And the guy goes, oh, cool. What do we need? I said, well, you tell me. You need security? When does the, the mall cops come by? Is there a safe? How much money? And so then it was funny. We walked in and he's listening and he's going, he's looking at jewelry. He started, I want to buy a little trinket for my, my uh, girlfriend. So he's looking at a ring and he goes, wow, a lot of security in here. I see the cameras. And the guy goes, ah, don't worry about those cameras. Those are dummy cameras. They, they haven't worked for years. <laughs> so The guy goes, you mean I could just walk out here and there's no camera and the guy goes, well, basically, and then he said, well, there must be security must come by every 15, 20 minutes. He goes, nah, so lazy. They don't come by, but maybe once a day. And I'm like, wow. Okay. And so then the guy goes, well, at least you keep your money in a drop. Well, obviously you drop the money in a safe. He goes, yeah, but the safe's broken. And, and it's over there behind the counter on the other side of the, the store and it's broken. And the guy says, you mean I can walk in here? And take that money and and leave? He goes, yeah, if you want to. And then he says, well, how about the ring? He says, ah, don't worry about that. That ring is under $1,200, and we don't prosecute anybody under $1,200. In fact, we don't even call the police. We just let it go. So I'm thinking, holy smokes, I could walk into that store, pick up a ring, and walk out, and nobody's going to stop me. And nobody's even going to report it to the police. So we left and i'm 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 in shock that that kid would release such valuable information and i wanted to go back and i almost did i wanted to go back and tell him hey look dude don't give this information out it's not good for you but we were in an uh, undercover intelligence operation and i i thought it'd be wiser not to reveal who we were <laughs>
0: It's such a great story, and a, believe it or not, in this world's kind of I wouldn't call it typical, but you know people do silly things with information. Did you have any rapport building in that, or you just kind of just dove right in on looking at jewelry?
1: No, he well he walked in. It's a jewelry store, so he walked in. And said, I'm looking for a ring for my girlfriend, and then he chit chats. Well, she's a nice girl, but and then he he came out with this. He says, "She's we don't know each other well enough to get a diamond, so I'm looking for something less than a diamond." So. You know, he was just, yeah, I know what you mean. You know, you don't want to spend too much on the girl and have her, you know, break up with you or something. And, the, and they were just chit-chatting back and forth. And then all of a sudden he goes, wow, this is a nice time. And
0: nice. But how long did it take to do that?
1: Oh, uh, minutes.
0: It's crazy, isn't it?
1: Minutes. I, I mean, the guy just, once. once you establish rapport with somebody, then they like you. And if they like you, then they will bend over backwards to help you
0: and that just seemed like it was just a string of presumptive statements then
1: yeah pretty much presumptive and it was amazing and you know you can use this for car dealerships uh, and here I'll, I'll give you another good example with Great. the dealer i wanted to buy my my wife a ring and uh, i wanted to see how much i could negotiate off the price of the ring so i just walked into the store and i said wow your com- you know your your uh, markup must be like what Hundred percent on jewelry. The guy's no, no. It's more closer to thirty percent. I said, well, you add your commission of thirty percent, and that adds to the markup. Said, no, thirty percent. He says, I get five percent. I said, well, you got to have discounts. He says, well, I'm authorized to give a ten percent discount, but my uh, supervisor he can he's authorized to give up to a twenty percent discount. So I'm putting all the the facts together, going like, now I know what to ask, and I, I in fact offered the 20% discount. and I got the, the ring for 20% off. And I got a gift wrap too. He says, you want to gift wrap it for your wife? I said, absolutely. <laughs> so I got 20% off the price and I also got a gift wrapped. So I thought I was doing pretty good. But that's how you can use elicitation.
0: Yeah. For, for good and, and, and a better relationship with your wife is always good by buying her nice gifts.
1: <laughs> well, the, and the other thing is it, once you, when you first meet somebody, you want to develop a good relationship with that person. If, if you're interested in developing a relationship, you can use elicitation to kind of make them feel more comfortable mm-hmm. in telling you things. And the more intimate things that you tell other people, the closer that relationship is because you become more vulnerable and, and you realize that trust comes from that vulnerability that we share with one another because we're, we trust each other to protect our vulnerabilities from the outside world. So you can use elicitation techniques to help with your relationships.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So Jack, what do you miss? So
1: what do I miss? <laughs> yeah, do you miss anything <laughs> from the, the FBI? F- in the FBI? From the FBI? Yeah, you know, sometimes I miss when I see it. I like complex investigations, especially in counterintelligence or espionage. It's it's times like that I, I like to I like to get involved. But, you know, for the most part, I've, my, my career in the Bureau has been outstanding. It's been the best I think it could have been. But I've moved on. I'm a professor now, and I teach young students. I, I still train for the FBI.
0: Oh, wow. Good job. So,
1: so I go like four or five times a year back to do some training. And I still go out and give talks and speeches and, and train police officers. And that's
0: so, given back in a great way, no doubt.
1: Yeah. So it, it's, it, it was great, great experience.
0: What's the next book?
1: You know what? I don't know what I'm going to do next. I don't know. I haven't decided yet.
0: Anything you're tinkering with in any way?
1: What I'm looking at is maybe some, like doing a Hemingway type thing, where there's a, a bunch of short stories of, mm. of moments in the FBI.
0: Oh, wow. Yeah.
1: I kind of got the idea when I was uh, reading Hemingway's volume of short stories. Right. It might be interesting because I thought, you know, a lot of cases we have, you know, investigations are boring, you know, most of the time. Yeah. You only have moments of excitement and people don't want to see the boring things. They want to hear the exciting things. So I was thinking of maybe taking all the, the highlights of some of the bigger cases and then just presenting the highlights. That'd be fun. I don't know if that'll work or not. That's, that's what I'm thinking about.
0: Good tinker. So, and so you're, I, I know you're extremely well read. Any top three book recommendations right now? Besides yours, of course.
1: (laughs) I'm I'm trying to think in, in what genre. I, I like historical novels. I like, I go through my... So,
0: I'll frame it like this. I, I find reading to be very grounding, um, very educational, very inspiring. You know, so I have the same thing. There's a lot of different types of books I read for whatever I want to do. What do you... So, what do you read for... I'm
1: trying to think of the last one I read. I read mostly historical novels about... I like Civil War and... Uh,
0: history. Oh, so how about this? How about a... Do you have a favorite Civil War person that you studied that you found inspiring.
1: Well, I, I read Ulysses S. Grant's memoirs and I thought he was a fascinating person because of of the situation he ran into where he he was on a losing side basically. They were losing the war when he he took over. Or they or they were losing it by inaction, I should say. There was right. nothing forward going on. And he, he was able to persevere through some very disheartening times. I admire that with 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 Grant. Yeah. Um, but, you know, if, you know, if you want to say my all time favorite book, yeah, would probably be the the man who would be the man who would be king by Rudyard Kipling. Oh yeah, Sean Connery and uh, Michael Kane. <laughs> they go into the Hindu Kush and they they take over uh, a bunch of tribes and it kind of went to their heads and they met the, they met their demise. So
0: I have not uh, read that. I'm going to have to watch that now. I
1: I just don't think, I think you can get more done by being nice to people.
0: Well, that's why we, that's why we came up with everything we do on a team. I mean, everything we ever did was strategize trust, strategize how not to be manipulative because if you don't have to be, you're going to go so much further.
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. And that I've taken that through my life. Try to, you know, the one motto I picked up along the way is when I meet somebody, I I just want to make their day just that little bit better than it was before meeting me. And I think that's a good way to look at when we meet people, because then it's about making them feel good about themselves. And once you take the focus off you and put it on them, they're going to like you. And if they like you, they'll bend over backwards to help you.
0: Yeah. And it's the bedrock of relationships, which is the bedrock of everything. And I think it's a great transition, you know, closing this up because again, when when you hear anecdotally or you meet someone like you that trains people in elicitation, which can be used for the dark arts as well as the good, you know. You, The last thing people are thinking of, when especially when they're thinking of FBI agents and recruiting spies and national security, is that we're just trying to take care of people. It's a very altruistic way of life. And so kind of bringing it back to that, just leave people feeling better from meeting you. And that's the way to do it.
1: Isn't that what we're supposed to do in life?
0: It is, isn't it? It's kind of crazy. (laughs) and and it's just and for and for the ENTJ which thought life was about power <laughs> with you know fantastic humbling moments And, you know, one of my first ones delivered by you, and I know I've I've said it a million times in different shows with you and stuff, Um, going through my first BAP assessment with you, which was beautiful, it was wonderful, it was exciting, and then I was assigned to do the write-up, and since you're a master word, Smith, and author, I'm sitting in my office, I send you the report, and uh, next thing I know, I get a phone call saying, we need to talk. (laughs) Three hours later and, and, and going through literally only two or three pages of writing. <laughs> yes. I've never been more humbled, but every day is another humbling day. I just pray I don't cause another one tomorrow. <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's how you learn though. You can, you know, how many people have the courage to say you're wrong, especially yeah. when you write something?
0: It's I one of the, my mottos is, yeah, never argue context with anyone. It, it serves no purpose.
1: <laughs> no. And, if, if you're wrong, you're wrong. And
0: yeah. Okay.
1: Yeah. So what? The sun still rises. My yeah. wife still loves me. My kids love me. The sun sets, rises again the next day. So you're wrong. So what?
0: And one of the greatest rapport builders is the ability to have humility, humbleness, transparency, and vulnerability.
1: Yeah. And I'll tell you one technique I generally use when I give a presentation is initially I'll make some minor mistake when I'm doing an introduction or I'll mispronounce a name right. And some of you inevitably catch me, ah, you did that wrong. I said, oh yeah, I guess I did. But what am I doing? When you make a mistake and it's not aimed at your credibility, you're actually letting people know you're human and it encourages them then to participate more in the training because, well, he made a mistake. So if I make a mistake, we're even. I mean, I'm, I'm not afraid to make a mistake because he's already made one. He can't yell at me about mm-hmm. my mistake because I just caught him at a mistake. So what that does is it, it erases that defense mechanism that you typically have. And I found out the more people participate in training, the more they own the training. And when it comes time for the evaluation, they're not gonna say they suck because they're part of that training. They own it. So that's how you can use, you know, that mistake technique to, you know, endear yourself.
0: Hmm. Jack, where can people find out more about you?
1: Typically, the only thing, my wife runs my social media. So LinkedIn is probably the best way to get a hold of me. Or I'll give you my personal email. It's jackshaper 500 at yahoo.com.
0: Do you want that on the, on, do you want that on the broadcast <laughs>
1: Yeah, that's fine. I don't mind people. That's my great. that's my throwaway email.
0: All right. <laughs> so I've been throwing I've been going to the throwaway email.
1: <laughs> no, I, I think I gave you the other one, didn't I?
0: I got bold, I think. <laughs> yeah. I never know then which I,
1: one to write. <laughs> then I got the super secret one.
0: <laughs> and as all great interviewers which I am not one, you know, always, you know, what didn't I ask you that you wish you could have said? <laughs>
1: The less I say, the better off I am. I found out that early. <laughs>
0: <was>. <laughs> so, again, for those listening, I can't recommend more the truth detector. You will not find a more comprehensive guidebook workbook on how elicitation works, how to recognize it, how to employ it. A lot of books and a lot of things out there have have it as little nuggets, maybe a chapter here or there. This is hands down the most comprehensive book on elicitation you'll ever get that can be used in every single aspect of your life. So that's all I got today. Thank you, Jack.
1: All right. Thank you. It was fun talking to you.
0: (laughs) Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Forge by Trust. If you enjoyed the show, took away a few new tools, I hope you will leave a great review of the show to show your support. If you are interested in more information about how to forge your own trust building strategies, please visit my website at www.peopleformula.com. You can also follow me on my social media sites included in the show notes. I'm looking forward to sharing my next Forge by Trust episode with you soon.